Hello and welcome to Monsieur So British, a podcast written and read by me, Ian Moore, a British stand-up comedian, best-selling author and owner of a B&B here in rural France. This podcast comes out every fortnight and although it flits about in subject matter, I suppose it's about life here in France, life as a stand-up, life as a family man, as a hotelier, as the cranky owner of a mini farm and about middle age and how possibly not to do it. And specifically, this week, it's about rheumatoid arthritis, which is, don't anybody tell you different, a barrel of laughs. So here we go, Monsieur So British, episode 9, A Dandy in Aspic. Part of the folklore of high-level sport is that at virtually no time in their careers are top-class athletes ever actually 100% fit. Now, of course, it might mean that they're also just high-level whingers too, but the point is... That despite the conditioning, the training, the medical backup and literally Olympian levels of dedication, they rarely achieve flawless physical perfection. 100% fitness is nigh on unattainable. I feel the same about rest. There seems to be an awful lot of rest about. Sleep, shut-eye, repose, slumber, dormancy, 40 winks, call it what you will. It's a bit like money. All around us apparently and I'm just not seeing any of it. The downside of being on no medication for the last month is that slowly, like a creeping frost, the pain has returned to all of my joints. And like frost, the pain is spiky, brittle and deepening as winter approaches. But with the pain has come a new wrinkle. Chronic, utterly debilitating fatigue. I'm used to tiredness, and though I wouldn't go as far as to say I thrive on it, asked Natalie and the boys just how gay and fancy-free I am on a Sunday evening, I cope pretty well. I've had no choice. I've been doing this absurd commute between France and the UK for 15 years, missing at least one night's sleep a week, and so now sleep so lightly that if I do set an alarm, I know for a fact I won't be asleep anymore when it goes off. Just the mere act of setting an alarm raises my attention levels to red alert, and the slightest disruption means that no Zs will be had. I've spent the last 15 years of my life getting by on doze. It's beginning to show. It's not that I've lost the will to fight, it's that I'm running on fumes now, and so battles must be chosen carefully or ignored, mostly the latter. I didn't like the smirk on the man's face. It's that smirk one man always reserves for another man when he knows he possesses a skill and knowledge that the other lacks. It's practised by mechanics the world over, plumbers as well, electricians and the like. I put my recalcitrant chainsaw on the counter and said I wanted it serviced. He snorted and offered a thin, chilling smile that revealed what looked like 17th century dental work. What's the point? he sneered. A regular go-to guy for all things lawnmower, chainsaw and hedge trimmer related could no longer be used. It's a pity, but there it is. Two years ago I took him the lawnmower, which I insisted did not work. He got it to work first time. I put the lawnmower back in the car, which was parked on an incline, started the car up, and the lawnmower went careering through the boot and the back windscreen, smashing the glass. It might not work now, he said humorously. In my opinion, then, it would take an impossible level of pride swallowing to go anywhere near his establishment again. There's just no coming back from a Mr Bean-like performance on that scale. No chance that my thundering ineptitude will ever be forgotten, and, so far as he knows, I've left the area entirely unable to deal with the shame. 
What do you mean, what's the point? I asked, incapable of hiding the ennui on my face. It will cost 80 euros to do a service, he sneered again. More than that thing is worth. He waved a dismissive hand at the inert chainsaw. Are you refusing to do it? I asked. No. Then do it, please, I said, possibly haughtily. I built this chainsaw from a kit, and though that may explain why the thing barely attacks a twig without breaking down, I feel some sense of connection with it. Once upon a time, with my tanks full and a modicum of vim at my disposal, I'd have argued the toss, maybe. Don't want the work, eh? I'd have said. Well, there's plenty that do. And I'd have stormed out, wielding the chainsaw, and we would have called it at best a draw. I can't anymore, or at least I can't at the moment. I'm paying twice as much as a thing costs to get it to work, whereas I could just buy another one that would definitely work and still spend less than 80 euros. Exhaustion has fuzzied my logic. I had planned a lie-in for last Friday, but that never happened. Terence misses his brothers probably more than we'd realised, and to cheer him up I'd said I'd get him up much earlier than usual, and we could watch the cricket together before school. I know that doesn't sound to most people like a cheering-up exercise, but Terence was overjoyed with the idea. England were playing in New Zealand, the programme would start about 5am, and I figured, wrongly, that there was no way he'd actually wake up when I went to get him something that happens more and more on school days. I went into his room at the appointed time, and he bounded out of his bed wearing his full England cricket kit. I was wrong then. As any England cricket fan will tell you, certainly us veterans of English cricket in the 1990s, introducing your child to the sport, and certainly to the England cricket team, is tantamount to abuse. He's utterly besotted by the sport, though, plays it when he can, watches it when he can, and while a parent's one job in life is to hide your child from the horrors of the world, I fear in this instance it's just too damn late. The kid's hooked. And this was a match that started around six in the morning. All the others on this tour are scheduled for about two in the morning. It's going to be a long bloody winter, I can tell you that. What I need is the England cricket team to suffer a few punishing defeats in the middle of the night to put young Terence off. But I'm also acutely aware that the England cricket team always, always lets you down so they'll no doubt win thriller after thriller just to keep me from getting any rest at all. And it's not just me that suffers. That Natalie and the boys wither the backlash of this permanent state of cranky, repressed half-life is obvious, but the B&B guests too. Daddy, said Terence, there's a man knocking on the window. Now, I can only take so much. These guests had annoyed the hell out of me already anyway with their early check-in requests and banging their cases on my pristine walls. Yes, I said irritably, no guest has ever knocked on my window before. They have their bit, we have ours, and I wasn't happy about this blurring of the lines. Can you, uh, can you open the gate, please? he asked. Why? Have you broken your arms? I was persuaded, after this episode, that maybe an early night would be a good idea try and get some sleep while I obviously needed it rather than wait for the traditional bedtime hours. And it worked too. It worked all the way up to 1.20am when some bastard rang the bloody doorbell. What was that? Natalie asked. The doorbell, I replied. I was already out of bed. Normally I'm much more cautious than that, especially at 1.20 in the morning. But I was so angry that my much sought-after sleep had been disturbed. I was in no mood for caution. That bloke probably wants me to open the bloody gate for him. I thundered as I went out the door. The doorbell rang again. Pyjamas, Wellington boots and a stolen hotel dressing gown should be enough to put anyone off. But when I got there, when I got to the gate, whoever it was had already gone. 
I saw a car down the road, its lights fading in the distance. Was it someone wanting a room? Someone with the wrong address? Some government anti-sleep agent? Was it a dream, even? I stood there, shivering, and could have wept with exhaustion. You bastards, I whispered. You utter, utter bastards. And with that, I sloped pointlessly back to bed. There's something about all state-run hospitals that feeds beautifully into my delusional self-fiction. Their cold, grey architecture and oppressive murmuring, almost paranoid atmosphere is so redolent of the Cold War that I can wander into reception, blink through my glasses, look around slowly and imagine that I am the actual Harry Palmer. The mundanity of these places, the sheer drabness of their washed-out, colourless throwback decor actually lifts me. Well... I say lifts me. What are you thinking? Natalie asked. We were both looking out of a window on the sixth floor of the Stasi headquarters in East Berlin. Sorry, not the Stasi headquarters in East Berlin. The Centre Hospitalier Simonvey de Blois. Below was the ground floor roof, gravelled a kind of dank beigey grey and with domed opaque skylights protruding. Weather, I said quietly, I would actually die if I threw myself out in an escaped attempt. I was thinking that there are no weeds in the gravel. Natalie quite rightly preferred to ignore my heavy-handed melodrama and concentrate on our domestic gardening issues instead. There were no weeds. Sinister, I thought, adopting the cane once more. Monsieur Moore! The call came from further down the shadowed, echoing corridor. J'arrive! I replied in my usual frockney. That's a mockney French crossover, so it comes out as je arrive. Natalie looked at me and squeezed my hand. We were at the hospital for my second opinion, a legal necessity if I was to be allowed onto the more expensive treatment programme. The previous treatment had tried to kill me, but I needed something as the crappy, that is, chronic rheumatoid arthritis inflammatoire psoriatique, was taking hold again, the pain and fatigue now affecting work. I was so glad that she was there. My French is, in theory, more than adequate to cope with these situations, but in the same way that all medics smoke, they all speak incredibly quickly too, treating each appointment as though it were a speed date, and I wasn't coping particularly well. It was a very cold room. I was lying on a bed in my pants, while very specific medical questions were being fired at me, and the brain fog began to descend. And then I felt the room change angle on me as I slid slowly down and away. Yes, snapped the smiling rheumatologist. The bed is broken, you see. You may as well lie down rather than try to sit up. I had, thanks to my perennial fear of these appointments, genuinely assumed that I was slipping slowly into unconsciousness, gripped with morbid fear. Not that the raised bedhead had a faulty spring and just couldn't sustain my weight. I felt like a bit of an idiot. I propped myself up on my elbows and tried to make it appear as though I'd known all along that the bed was faulty. But the pain went shooting through my joints again, so I just laid back and concentrated on the grey polystyrene ceiling above me instead and let Natalie do the talking. Since my GP's angry, xenophobic rejection of my initial diagnosis, this appointment had taken on an extra significance. Would it be my Romanian rheumatologist or my, by his own admission, misanthropic family doctor who had got it right? They had both assessed the same evidence from a barrage of examination results, but was it about evidence or opinion? 
I hoped it was the former. If there's anything the world or I needs less of right now, it's ill-informed opinion masquerading as expert judgment. Opinions fly around these days, like ashes floating from a bonfire, short-lived and fragile, increasingly weaker the further they get from the source. Our bed and breakfast got a review on Google Business recently, and it turned out to be from a 14-year-old friend of Morris's who just happened to be cycling by the gate, triggering an alignment of 3G, Google's opinion-needy ubiquity, and his ability to ride hands-free while typing on his phone, giving us a free five-star review. Which is all well and good if it works in your favour, but it can also work the other way. I got a one-star review on Amazon for my first book, The Most Useless Book Ever, it said clearly not even considering that at the very least it's made of paper so you could start a fire with it. I was relieved then, after more verbal and physical prodding, that the rheumatologist confirmed the opinion of the other rheumatologist. I have indeed got chronic rheumatoid arthritis inflammatoire psoriatic crappy, she said, though she didn't say the crappy bit, and I lay back on the bed and nearly rolled off backwards. It wasn't all good news though, Before proposing the expensive wonder treatment, all other treatments must be tried first, which I know is fair enough, but is still a little deflating. There's no reason, of course, why this different range of drugs might not work where the others failed. But when you are then asked to seek the advice of a gastroenterologist just to see if your body can take a certain type of medicine, doubts inevitably creep in. And the side effects of this new prescription read like a news report from an African famine. By Christmas... I'll have at the very least diarrhoea or constipation, liver damage, chest pain, hives, an oral thrush, and that's just the nice ones. I got dressed as Natalie asked the rheumatologist if there was anything else I could be doing in the meantime, any dietary changes and so on. Not really, was the reply, keep on as you are, which I took to mean the odd medicinal glass of rosé. Try to exercise, of course, but most importantly, try to relax. Ah, yes, the old try-to-relax chestnut. Here we go again. Ian, you have three jobs. You spend your life travelling between them while coping with an animal mental hospital and a demanding family. Now you just go and relax for a bit. You can't you can't force relaxation in the same way that you can't force enjoyment. It's an emotion, a mood, not an exercise. Plus it needs your brain to play along and not sit there like it's a laptop with twelve different tabs open at once. Humans don't have a screensaver. Just saying to someone, relax, doesn't immediately induce relaxation, unless they're under hypnosis, so even then it's forced. The departures board at Stansted Airport now says, relax on it while waiting for your boarding gate to be announced. Relax? In Stansted Airport? Are you kidding? Stansted Airport is like the trash compactor in the first Star Wars. The walls, in this case of retail and fast food, closing in on you while stag parties leer drunkenly from the bars and hen parties wander about with inflatable penises. And you're telling me to relax in the midst of all this oppressive mania? Back in the 1960s angled hospital, the rheumatologist handed me a booklet. It's not specifically about your condition, she whispered, but there's some good advice. Delusion... Daydreaming, a blank refusal to live in the real world, call it what you will. It's a defence mechanism for me, a necessary shield against the mundanity of growing old and the relentlessness of domesticity. So here, to me, a beautiful foreign agent was passing me forged papers while hinting Matahari style at further liaisons. I looked at the booklet, though I did so discreetly in case we were being watched. There was a whole chapter on how to bend down properly. 
followed by a detailed pictogram of the best way to put your shoes on without aggravating your illness. I sighed heavily. You can hold on to your delusions for only so long. Thanks for listening. I do hope you enjoy it. Um, please share it if you did. And if you want any information on my books or stand-up or on the B&B, go to my website, ianmore.info. And I'll speak to you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you.